Well, today we're wrapping up our Lenten Luncheon series on the metaphors of the church by looking at the church as army. Now, that may make some of us kind of uh, cringe a little bit when when you think, because this is what you think of when you hear the church as army. It sounds a bit extreme. And surely the church, I mean, the church shouldn't be using physical violence or force to achieve its goal in the world. And if that is your assumption, then it's a correct one. So at the outset, I want to make it clear that the church's war is a spiritual one. It is not a physical one. But that doesn't make it any less real. In fact, I want to propose today that it is more real and the consequences of the war that are being waged in the spiritual realm are of far greater significance than any earthly war that has ever been fought. For the victories and the casualties of this war, they're eternal. And the population that's affected by it is universal. The population of all times and all places. First thing I want to look at today is enlistment. Who is enlisted in this war? How do you enlist in this war? 1 John 5 tells us that the whole world, everyone is under the power and the authority of the evil one. And my point is that everyone is enlisted in this war. Everyone you know is a party to one side of this war, whether they know it or not. Either you're enlisted in Satan's army, the army that is in rebellion to God's good rule, or you're in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church. There's, there's absolutely no neutrality in this war. Either the captain of your soul is Christ, or it's the prince of the power of the air, whom Ephesians chapter 2 tells us was at one time each and every one of our captains. Many will choose to disbelieve that there is such a thing as Satan, but that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, it's Satan's greatest tactic here in the West today to blind us to his existence. To make us believe that he and his army does not exist. Imagine if you could make the opposing army believe that you didn't exist. How you could just kind of slip in and slip out and plant what you want to plant and then get out as quick as you can. Think about the advantage you would have. Well, his tactic is completely the other way around in other places in the world, in eastern countries, in places like India and Bangladesh and Nepal. There, he, he wants them to know that he exists in the form of other uh, divine creatures because he wants them to fear him. But here, if he can only get us to, to locate all of our, our purposes and, and, and uh, meaning and temporal things and, and focus our attention on the present course of this world, then he'll keep our allegiance. Because an allegiance that doesn't belong to God belongs to Satan. Now, how does one transfer into God's army from Satan's army? Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is a divine rescue. 
But God will not force us to accept His love and His sacrifice for us if we want to keep fighting in Satan's army. God will respect that wish. The primary way that Satan will keep soldiers out of God's army, and so in his, is by their unbelief. He needs their hearts to remain hardened to the truth. He needs them to continue to focus their attention on all the things around them while he continues to influence their surrounding culture to keep the delusion up. He is a cruel master. Now secondly, I I want to look at what is the purpose of this war? What is our, our mission? When Jesus walked the earth, He went from village to village proclaiming that the kingdom of God was coming. It was advancing. He went about preaching and teaching and practicing hospitality, healing the sick, helping the poor break down the enemy's delusions in people's minds through His words and through His actions. And after He ascended into heaven ten days later, He poured out His Holy Spirit on the church so that we would continue His mission, the mission that He had already begun, of advancing His kingdom over the entire earth. And so He gave us a mission. A mission to complete His mission. The mission that He began. And a mission that Paul and his co-laborers were unable to complete in their lifetime. In fact, it's the same mission that the church is occupied with today. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now surely... Paul isn't saying here that there is anything that's lacking in Christ's afflictions on the cross or in His atonement for our sins. No, Paul wouldn't say that. Paul is not a heretic. But what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that that Paul was trying to help fill up? Well, Jesus had suffered to make salvation possible to offer us the forgiveness of sins, to give us new life in Him, to become the Gospel in a sense, to become the good news. But someone still had to take that Gospel and give it to the people. Someone's got to take that good news out into the world, to the whole world, to the Gentiles. People like you and me. People like your neighbor. Paul says, There will be suffering and afflictions involved in doing that. The world will be opposed to it. But that was his mission. And that's the church's mission today. Paul's mission was to take the Gospel to unknown lands, faraway places. Most people's mission will be able to take it much closer to home. To their families, to the local college campuses, to their co-workers. That's not to say that we're not involved in foreign missions. We will be. We must be. But on an active day-to-day level and in His providence, God has put each and every one of us where we are to make His name known there. Wherever you are, if you're a Christian, God has assigned a soldier right there to bear His name. 
He is assigned an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation to that post. What does that look like in our context? What does it look like in your context? Well, for us, I'm, I'm convinced that it looks relational. I'm convinced that we've got to be out there meeting people. We've got to be out there inviting them into our homes. We've got to be practicing the hospitality that Jesus practiced. We've got to invite people to our tables. We've got to bring them into our, their, our lives. And we've got to be there for when they hit rock bottom. We've got to be there for whenever they begin to come to a place where they're just looking for help. We've got to be there to help. We've got to be there to comfort them. We've got to be there to share the transforming love of Jesus with them. And even in that, there will be some kind of adversity. There will be afflictions of some sort as as Paul faced on a much more extreme level. Paul was trying to love people. He was preaching a hard word, uh, but he was really trying to love them and giving them the truth. Whenever the kingdom of God advances against the powers of darkness, there will be adversity. But our purpose is to continue until the banner of Jesus Christ is lifted over every boundary and marker of this earth. The church will continue our mission of evangelizing the nations until the Lord returns to set up His throne on a conquered and a glorified earth. Now every army is organized in a, an orderly way. It will have some sort of order. We know this is true of Satan's army. Ephesians 6 tells us that. Matthew 12. But it is also no less true of God's army. Jesus is always the commander-in-chief of this army. His Word directs us, and when the church forgets that, it loses all of its power and authority. Because we're no match to the forces of darkness apart from Christ, whose Word we seek to obey, whose Word we seek to have dwell in us. Just as we do battle against an ordered kingdom, against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual powers of this present age, so we see throughout Scripture that God has so set up His kingdom to function and to advance in an orderly way. And that kingdom advances when each office is doing what it's designed to do. We see angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim all working on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation in an orderly way, as an army. We see bishops and presbyters. We see elders and deacons. We see apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers all equipped to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we also see that the pastors of the churches are to provide leadership throughout this time of war. Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Submission and obedience are essential acts in any army. The functionality of the army it depends on submission to, to orders and a chain of command. How can the mission be a success if the army is divided against itself and the chain of command is then disregarded? How can an army function without trust in its leadership, without a, a willingness to 
follow its leadership into the battle. It's certainly no less the case for the army of God, for the church. Now notice that uh, neither of these texts say on the condition that you agree with their decisions. We won't always agree on everything. As much as I tend to think that you know, we mostly see eye to eye, the priests at St. Philip's won't always agree on everything. But that's okay. Because we have a common mission in life and we know that God in His providence has put us all together to serve alongside one another and alongside you for such a time as this. And He's given us a, a general whom we call Jeff to submit to and to obey for the well-being of the ones that we are serving. And the Lord has given him a bishop to submit to and obey. Now in the church, we don't submit out of force. We submit out of love and respect. And if not for the person, then because the person is the Lord's anointed for that office and for that time. Leaders of the church will not always be right. And they may not always agree on how to go about doing something. But at the end of the day, after praying and talking through that matter, we all know that the final decision must come down to the captain of that, that troop or that regiment. And in our context, the, the clergy here at St. Philip's, that's Jeff. Which is especially comforting for us because I, I don't think that any of us would, would want any other leader at the wheel of our ship in this present time or any time. In His wisdom, God appoints each person to their post and their responsibility. And if you're in the church, He's assigned you to a post too, to a responsibility. And you know, there is great freedom in not having other people's responsibilities. There's great freedom in knowing that you're not in control when you can let go of trying to be in control and just let the responsibility fall into the hands of the person whom God has given it to. It's comforting because it means weight that was never meant to be put on your shoulders doesn't get added to what was meant to be put there. Each person in the church army by, by ranking, that's all of us, must learn to trust the Lord by trusting their superior officer or officers. We must learn to focus upon what we have been specifically assigned to do in this mission and then let our superiors do what they've been assigned to do by their superior offers. And this does three things. It allows the unit to work in an orderly way. It takes unneeded pressure off of our shoulders. And it allows the communication line to be open for messages and crucial assignments to be passed down unhindered. But when there are disputes in the ranks and the directions from the commander-in-chief get distorted and as they're being passed down through the ranks, crucial communications to those on the front lines, they get distorted. Or they are uh, maybe they're missed altogether. There's a neurological disorder called cerebral palsy. With cerebral palsy, the body doesn't always get the messages that the brain is trying to send to it. See, the head and the body coordination are off. I remember flying into Delhi one morning at 5 a.m. and seeing just hundreds of children sleeping on the streets, skin and bone. And I remember in that moment asking Jesus, 
why don't you do something to these poor and miserable children who are starving? It was as if he said to me in that moment, I've been sending the messages to my body, but it's not acting. The coordination is off. Friends, the body of Christ struggles with cerebral, cerebral palsy. Unfortunately, that's the problem in a lot of our losing battles in this war. We don't act on the command of the leader sometimes because we're not getting the message, sometimes because we're not trusting the messenger, and sometimes because the enemy's tactic to deceive us, to infiltrate us, has succeeded. It's so important that every member of the army trusts its superior officers, stays at its station, be taken care to do its particular duty. Now, of course, this is always in the context that the commanding officers are acting within accordance to their higher authority. In the church's case, it's the Word of God. Every officer always draws authority from one that's higher. In this way, all authority in the life of the church is derived from God's Word written. Next, every, every military has some component of basic training where soldiers receive their orders, where they learn the, their operating tactics and how to use their weapons. The church does too. It often calls this spiritual formation. It, it does this in times throughout the week when the church gathers in the formation of word and sacrament uh, with its shared habits of prayer and worship and Bible study and service and witness. But our aim in spiritual formation is this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is an, uh, an essential component of a mature soldier in the army of the church. Well, how is one to be transformed? Well, by the Word of God and the spiritual practices and obedience to it. Now, this does not mean that I can you know, just pick up this Bible and then just open it to a place somewhere and then just uh, randomly place my finger on it and find God's will for my life that way, like it's a, some sort of magical crystal ball. It doesn't mean that. It, nor does it mean that we know just where to go in the Scriptures to find God's will for that particular situation in our life. Though that is a very good thing to be able to do. It does mean that we read, that we mark, that we inwardly digest God's Word so regularly that we know what His will is in each circumstance. But not only that we know His will mentally, but that His will becomes our delight to the point that it gets hardwired into our hearts and our minds so that we act and react. The reacting part is important, that we react according to His will. That, that we come to act in God's will naturally and the often... Uh, split-second decisions that we have to make when reacting to circumstances that come up in our lives. When we don't have time to open a Bible and flip up to a verse. It's a transforming of the mind until the will changes to align with God's. When this occurs, one discerns and acts on God's will with little effort. Little effort or thought. Because not only do we have the conscious knowledge 
of the Bible in our brains, but the Spirit has used the Bible to transform our unconscious desires and our affections to align to His will. Let me tell you what I mean. When we go through our day, we do not consciously think about really what we do. We walk to the kitchen, we go to the fridge, pull out a jug of milk, all in this automatic mode, while our conscious mind is thinking about other things that have nothing to do with the glass of milk. Our way of going through the day is colored or or coated with affections. We have intuitive bodily responses to the red light while we're driving down the road, to the billboard of our favorite food on it, to a boss who walks towards us with an angry face. And the most significant aspect of how we respond to these situations is not our conscious thought. It's not the thought that is slower and takes more effort, the one that articulates judgments and makes choices. No, it's the unconscious thought. The hardwired, fast, automatic thought that quickly perceives the situation and reacts in an effectively coded way. See, God's aim is to transform both layers. The conscious and the unconscious thought of the Christian soldier. And of course, it's the part of our thought that is more automatic and acts more quickly that is the most difficult to transform because we can't just pour knowledge into the brain to make it happen. We need the Spirit of God to water the seed of God's Word sowed into our minds and our hearts to bring the transformation. The soldier in God's army will need to to be repeatedly doing this because he lives in a culture that is actively trying to form his mind in the other direction. We're not just what we think or what we know. Humans are desiring creatures who will be known by their loves and shaped by their habits which will bear fruit in human action. We need to be incorporated into the army of God and begin this basic training. The patterned community of of Word and Sacrament with its shared habits of prayer and worship and Bible study and service. Because these internalize God's Word in us. They are the seeds uh, on which the Spirit pours His fertilizer, so to speak. And all of these practices and particularities, the Spirit can shape or reshape our loves and affections and actions so that we become mature soldiers in the army of the church. We've looked at who's in this war and how one enlists. We've determined determined what the purpose and the mission of this war is. We've talked about what the internal operations of the army look like. Now we have to look at how to win this war. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now notice the church is not on defensive here. The church is on the offense. The church is aggressively attacking. The gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail, says Jesus. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates are defensive in design. You hide behind gates. Gates are are there to protect you. They surround the city. The picture here is, is the devil and his army bunker down, hiding behind the gates. The devil and his minions are on the run. They're in the defensive mode. Somebody is attacking them. Who is it? It's the church. The devil and his harmony, they're, they're, they're hiding behind the gates. And the church with its gospel-battering rams are attacking the gate. 
The church is on the offensive. The church is the aggressor. And we attack with the Christ, with Christ's promise always in mind here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. We have to remember that this is a promise that comes from Jesus, but how, how do we attack? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This text takes us to the battlefield. The first thing that Paul tells us here is that the warfare that the Christian is involved in is very different from the typical warfare of the world. Again, we're talking about a different kind of war. And in a sense, it's far more dangerous, isn't it? The weapons are are greater, more potent than than the grenades or, or the cruise missiles or the nuclear bombs. The enemy is far more powerful. In the words of Martin Luther, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. The Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians that they are engaged in a war. In verse 4, he tells us, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, the picture here is not one of passivity. It's one of aggression. He pictures the army of God as being very active, even confrontational. And we're not attacking people's character. We're not attacking someone's personality. No, look carefully. Destroying strongholds. Destroying arguments. This is a battle of ideas, we could say. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says we have the power by God's grace to destroy strongholds. What does he mean by strongholds? The apostle is using symbolism that was drawn from classic warfare in that day. A a prosperous city would not only have a stone wall for security or gates, but somewhere inside that wall there was a stronghold. A well, it was well fortified. It would be defended by soldiers. But what would happen? Once the walls of the city were breached, the defending forces would retreat to the stronghold. This is where they would hide for their last major battle. It was their final defense. But here again, the church is the aggressors. Isn't it true that we're often intimidated by the world? We wonder how we can survive in an antagonistic culture where we sometimes think that we have to retreat, maybe surrender, or at least you know, wave a white flag of neutrality and keep silent. We can sometimes be cowered into silence, can't we? I'll be the first to admit that uh, frequently having to battle through timidity in the face of battle. But sometimes the Lord can even use our weakness for good. In 2008, I was in uh, North Africa in a Muslim country that was closed to Christianity. I can't say which country it was because there are still team members over there today. And for their safety, I, I can't give the country. 
But we were training to be missionaries to Muslims there. And there was a man who I would later come to know, his name was Muhammad, uh, who was a Sufi Muslim, and he had taken a vow to end my life. Well, the first time that I met Muhammad, I was sitting out on, uh, just like you're sitting at a table, but it was outside in front of a little restaurant. And he came up, he's wearing a, a bone around his neck and a necklace, and he starts walking around my table and just dropping crumbs, humming some mantra. And then all of a sudden he starts rolling on the ground on the table around me. It turns out he was trying to cast a spell. Well, we got up and left that place and went home, and as anyone would do. <laughs> but then I started to notice that he was following me. He had perceived that I was the leader of, of our team, and so he had planned to kill me. Caught him going through my trash, saying things, just really weird stuff. And there, there were a couple girls on our team, and they were really scared because he would follow them too. And uh, one day, several weeks later, I, we were having coffee, and uh, I was just talking to my teammates. We were all feeling really scared, timid, not knowing what was going on. We just knew this guy was following us all the time. I had gotten sick one time, not long after he was going through the trash and, and casting spells, and just really weird thing. We talk about spiritual forces at work and this not being a battle of flesh and blood. Well, I had gotten sick. I lived on top of a mosque, and so the call of prayer would go off at certain times every day. I was hearing it go off in the middle of the night. I was hearing dogs bark. There are no dogs in Muslim countries like that because Muhammad didn't like dogs. He liked cats. There were cats walking around everywhere. So it was just those weird things were going on, and we were just really scared. Um, one day we were at a coffee shop having coffee, and we saw him walk up and sit down right on the shoreline. And the only way that I can explain it is that I had some kind of supernatural faith come into me at that moment that I did not normally possess. And I looked at them and said, I've got to go talk to him. And he said, okay, do it. So I walked out there. I looked at Muhammad square in the eyes. He looked at me, shocked that I came to look at him, talked to him, and I just began speaking. And apparently I was speaking in Arabic because after about 30 seconds, he looked at me and he just smiled. He understood it. And from that day on, Muhammad became our friend. He told us what had happened, what he had planned to do, and he told us that from now on he was going to be our bodyguard. I don't know if Muhammad ever became a Christian, but he sure was a changed man, to us at least. And he was now always walking around us to make sure we were safe. My point is that the Lord is able to, to make up for our weaknesses with His strength. He's reliable to help us stand when we don't have the strength to. How can we stand against a culture that is becoming more and more aggressive and intolerant to Christians? Paul gives the church marching orders. 
dear. We, we're, we are to stand for the truth, to tear down strongholds of lies and deceits that the non-believers hide behind. Whether it's the stronghold of religious pluralism, which says that there are many ways to God, if, and it really doesn't matter which way you choose. Or the stronghold of the autonomous individual, which makes man the highest moral authority, saying that man is his own authority. Maybe it's the stronghold of hedonism, which makes personal pleasure of everything. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Maybe it's the stronghold of postmodernism or moral relativism that believers are... There are no absolutes. That everything is based upon subjective experience. So what is wrong for you might not be wrong for me. Maybe it's the stronghold of materialism. Now this idea of being the aggressor doesn't mean we become belligerent or obnoxious in our attempts to advance. In fact, it's interesting how Paul begins the whole matter of spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. Notice how he starts off this whole section in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. You see, these two words, meekness and gentleness, that should really shape how we bring the message to the unconverted. It should, bring, it should really shape how we interact with people in everyday life, including the way that we interact with people on social media. Didn't Jesus describe Himself under the word meek? I am meek and I am lowly. Isn't that the word that Jesus uses in one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. He's saying this is what my kingdom citizens look like. This is how they live. They are meek. Meekness is the opposite of what you normally see in the world. Opposite of violence. Opposite of vengeance. We're to engage in spiritual warfare, tearing down strongholds, casting down arguments. But we don't do it in a condescending sort of way. We don't do it in a mean-spirited kind of way, an arrogant way. That will never convince anyone. Because we live in a very unkind world. Have you noticed that it's getting more and more unkind? Ruder and ruder, meaner and meaner. The world laughs and it sneers. It wants to vilify you, vilify Christians. They say Christians are ignorant, they're intolerant, they're bigoted. Well, the answer isn't to respond unkindly. See, Christianity is different, radically different from the world, even in how it responds to the world. The world is dominated by hatred and slander and malice and prejudice. If the world listens to us and if we approach them in the same way that they approach us, then we're not going to win them. If they scream at us and we simply scream back, if they threaten us and we threaten back, we're never going to win them. We're not going to advance that way. No, the church is to be distinguished by those beatitudes. It's to be distinguished by gentleness and meekness and how it treats people. We're to love our enemies. We're to be bold, courageous, kind, and gracious. At the same time, we're not called upon to retreat or surrender or cower. But neither do we retort to retaliatory action, gossip, or slander, or threatening, or abusive speech. We overcome evil with good. We overcome hate with love. We overcome unkindness with kindness. Harshness with gentleness. We have different weapons. We have grace weapons. Our weapons are more powerful than bullets, more powerful than grenades or, 
or terrorist bombs. We have the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God. It can change hearts. It can change lives. Not just temporally, but eternally. And it can free persons who have been captured and blinded by the devil. Somebody must put it in front of them. Jesus accomplished it. He accomplished it for them. But Paul says that He's going to take it to them. We're called to take the Gospel to them. To deliver it to them. I want to end by saying that no one is ever ready for this. No one is ever ready for what they might face in war. You'll never be completely ready. I certainly am not ready often. But if I was, I wouldn't have to depend on God. I wouldn't have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is guiding this ship. Jesus is in control. When you step out to engage the enemy with love, when you step out to invite that person to your home, to have lunch with your family, to take back ground from the kingdom, to seek to release the captive, the Lord will work in your weakness. Do not worry that you're not ready. That you're not ready to speak. That you're not ready to talk about this. The Lord will work in your weakness. When the church joins together and is growing together in what it means to be Jesus' family, to be His temple, to be His bride, to be His body. He's already signed up for basic training. You've all signed up for basic training. Now it's time for action. It's time to live into our God-given mission as the army of God, as the church. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in Your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the people of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin and the devil, may be freed and brought together under His most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.